To the extent that the cannabis industry has rock stars, Dr. Ethan Russo is one of them. His groundbreaking research on cannabis terpenes, the entourage effect, endocannabinoid deficiency, and phytocannabinoids in general are all essential reading for anyone looking to really understand the interaction between the cannabis plant and humans. I remember the first time I invited Dr. Russo to speak here on Vashon Island, we had 75 chairs set up like we normally would for a Vashon Island Marijuana Entrepreneurs Alliance meeting, and those chairs filled up really quickly. Then we used the rest of the chairs that were in the closet. And when we were out of chairs, folks sat on pillows and jackets on the floor in front of the chairs. And finally, it was standing room only in the back. That night, it was like an old school teach-in. Everybody was excited to have an opportunity to hear Dr. Russo speak in person and have their questions answered. See, for years, it has been nearly impossible for regular people to hear Dr. Russo speak because he worked at GW Pharmaceuticals and pretty much only spoke at high-priced exclusive pharmaceutical conventions. I remember very clearly the day I received an email from Ethan saying that he was no longer at GW and he was now free to accept my speaking invitation for a simple log cabin Grange Hall on Vashon Island. He sounded very excited because, you know, Ethan really isn't an ivory tower kind of researcher. He's more interested in speaking directly to patients and working in the field like he had done previously in Morocco, China, and Peru. Dr. Russo's research paper titled Taming THC, Potential Cannabis Synergy and Phytocannabinoid Terpenoid Entourage Effects, has become a cornerstone of cannabis medicine. For many folks, myself included, it was the first time we had read a detailed paper explaining the interplay of different phytocannabinoids in a conversational tone that anyone could understand. You can find a link to the paper on our website. You are listening to the Shaping Fire podcast, and I am your host, Shango Lose. On today's episode, we will go point by point through the entire text of Dr. Russo's Taming THC paper and enjoy some rare commentary from Dr. Russo himself. If you would like to hear more candid interviews with the cannabis industry's top professionals, subscribe to the Shaping Fire newsletter to receive new episode announcements. We find that relying on social media to connect with you continues to get less and less reliable, so I encourage you to sign up for the newsletter at shapingfire.com. Dr. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Massachusetts Medical School before residencies in pediatrics in Phoenix, Arizona, and in child and adult neurology at the University of Washington in Seattle. He was a clinical neurologist in Missoula, Montana for 20 years in a practice with a strong chronic pain component. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He joined GW as a full-time consultant in 2003. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He is author of several books on cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really glad that you were willing to make the time to, to join us. So, so let's start with something pretty basic. So we know that phytocannabinoids exist, and there must be a reason that they exist in nature. So you know, what natural benefit do phytocannabinoids offer to the plant that, that makes them exist in the first place? Well, uh, straight out of the chute, it's important to relate that they're not there for uh, human enjoyment. The plant itself is much older 
uh, than uh, humans are as a species. So yes, you're right. They perform an ecological role in the plant, and actually it's more than one. Um, one of the things is that the cannabinoids uh, protect the plant from genetic damage from ultraviolet light exposure. Uh, one of the things we know is that production of the cannabinoids will be increased with higher light pressure and at a higher elevation. Uh, so those two things go together. Another interesting role of the cannabinoids is that uh, some of them are insecticidal. Uh, so if a bug lands on uh, the flower, there are two ways in which uh, the bug can meet its demise. One is from a chemical attack by the, the cannabinoids, and the other is just the stickiness of the trichomes will trap them. Uh, finally, the uh, cannabinoids also are helpful in pruning the plant. As it's trying to mature and become fertilized, these will rain down on the fan leaves and uh, they will tend to die. So what the plant is doing near the end of its year of growth is putting all the uh, effort, uh, chemically speaking, into getting fertilized and nurturing that flower in the hopes that it will become fertilized. But that's usually thwarted by humans that want it to remain unfertilized to get the greater cannabinoid production. It, that's interesting to me, hearing you describe it almost as a as a defense mechanism and as a plant regulator because, you know, in our own endocannabinoid system, that's the same thing that phytocannabinoids do for us, you know, defense and regulation of our systems. Um, there must be some similarity at, at a nature level where where these, these chemicals are, are helping living things. Well, that's exactly right. There's a increasing appreciation now uh, that these plant defense compounds also uh, extend uh, towards effects uh, on humans too. Um, there's a very interesting book by Kennedy called Plants in the Human Brain that goes into these uh, relationships in, in greater depth, but that that's it. Uh, some of these antioxidants that the plant produces to prevent diseases have the same kind of protective functions in humans. And uh, this is the reason that a highly varied plant diet uh, seems to help prevent aging, help prevent cancer and things of this sort. Right on. That's really interesting. So, so today, instead of talking about necessarily about defending the plant, we're going to be talking about uh, these different phytocannabinoids effects on on our humans, and you know, there's one, um, there's a, well, there's a bunch of terms that could be unfamiliar to folks that we're going to run into today. But but one of them um, that I ran into from rereading the paper now, because I haven't read it in a couple years. But um, before we get into the meat of the topic, I'd really appreciate it if you would explain the difference for folks, be, uh, the difference between an agonist and an antagonist, because sure. I feel we'll probably be using that quite a bit. Right. Well. We have receptors on our cells. Uh, probably the place that's most familiar to people would be in neurotransmission. In other words, how nerve cells communicate one to another. And it is a combination of chemical and electrical transmission. But receptors on cells are things that help affect a certain kind of reaction. So we can think of it as a lock and key model. In fact, it's a lot more complicated than that. But an agonist will be like a key 
that fits in the lock and produces a stimulation of a certain function. An antagonist goes in the opposite direction. It lowers the function. Um, and then we've got modifiers beyond that. Um, there are things called inverse agonists, which despite the way it sounds, uh, actually lower the overall activity. So they're like a super antagonist. Uh, but we'll, we'll explain these in context as they come up. Right on. So to, to really simplify it, an agonist is more likely to increase the effect and an, an antagonist is more likely to decrease the effect. That's quite right. Great. Um, uh, an, another uh, aspect that you mentioned in the paper a few times that I'd love to hear broken out before we get into it is uh, um, Raphael Meshulam's Law of Stinginess, which I love the name, but um, I had not heard that referred to before. So if you kind of explain that uh, example before we get into it. Sure. What he means is uh, enzymes, which are catalysts that uh, help bring uh, reaction uh, uh, onward, um, may act on more than one substrate. A substrate is a chemical that is turning into another chemical. Um, so, for example, uh, there, are, uh, there are two basic kinds of cannabinoids, the propyl with a five-carbon side chain, I'm sorry, propyl with a three-carbon side chain and the pentyl with a five-carbon side chain. Um, but certain enzymes can work on both. Uh, there are other enzymes that aren't following the law of stinginess that may only work on one compound. So, Right on. So, so we're going to jump into the first uh, wave of cannabinoids, and and as I was telling folks in the introduction, you know, we're kind of going to go through them as a list, the way that you do in the paper, uh, in in a couple of groups. The first one being uh, the, the you know THC, CBD, and and the ones that we're more uh, familiar with, and then we'll move on to the terpenes, and then we'll talk about their applications. So, I know that I know that we could do an entire show just on THC, but it is the first uh, cannabinoid that you go ahead and explain. So let's, let's start there with the, with the big elephant in the room. So uh, if you would, kind of review THC and how it uh, relates to phytocannabinoid activity. Sure. Well, THC is probably the single chemical most associated with cannabis, and it is the primary psychoactive ingredient. In other words, um, the uh, compound that makes people high. Uh, but it has uh, a lot of very important medical effects uh, as an analgesic, meaning a painkiller. It's an antispasmodic. It uh, prevents spasms. Uh, it lowers muscle tones. tone. It is a muscle relaxant. That's the basis for its use in treating spasticity. Um, muscle tone tightness that occurs in multiple sclerosis and a variety of other brain diseases. Uh, and that, uh, that benefit uh, has made uh, Sativex, which does contain THC, an approved drug in 27 countries, just not here in the U.S., when I'm talking to patients, one of the examples that I give for how THC actually decreases pain is I said, you know, there's kind of, uh, there, there's two paths to it. Uh, the first path is um, it's uh, 
you know, anti-inflammatory, muscle relaxation, and general analgesic effect. But then also, what I what I've gotten to call, started calling uh, cascading forgetfulness, right? Because we we t- we talk with cannabis folks, and you know, you get a little high, and then you forget where you put your keys, and you go on doing other things, and you know that that kind of idea of short-term forgetting often has patients forget that they're in pain. It's also, I think, why it works so well with PTSD folks because you just get distracted by life. And you get involved, and you, and you forget that you're in pain. So I like to I like to think about it having these two different paths. Do you think that's a, a fair ex- a way to describe it? Yeah, it sure is because you've hit on uh, two of the key mechanisms. One is a direct effect against pain that works through complex pathways in the brain, spinal cord, and nerves out in the body. So that's one. But the other is the way it modulates the emotional part of pain. Um, And so, yeah, part of it is distraction, but additionally, there have been studies that show that the emotional factor in pain is considerably reduced by cannabinoids and specifically by THC. So that combination uh, together is quite powerful um, and doing something that other drugs just don't do. You know, I, I can't be the only one listening to you talk right now, feeling a little giddy to be able to get information directly from the source. You know, so many of us are, who are trying to learn about cannabis, we're getting our information from secondary sources, right? And secondary sources are not really as good as hearing it right from you. So, so anyway, it's, it's a real joy to actually hear it in your own words. So one more thing on THC before we move on, you know, um, you know, I'd love for you to review a little bit, you know, THC you know, in isolate is not the magical thing, right? We, we understand the entourage effect, and I talked a little bit about that in, in the introduction, but would you talk about the importance of, of not using THC on its own and that it needs the other phytocannabinoids to be there with it? Right. Well, the easiest thing would be an illustration. THC as a single compound, a synthetic form, was approved in the United States in 1985, and that was to treat nausea uh, associated with chemotherapy. Um, But uh, many people tolerated it poorly. Almost no one liked it uh, the way that they might like cannabis. Um, And people who'd used both said, this really isn't like cannabis. Cannabis works a lot better. Um, That wasn't something that everyone was prepared to hear Uh, Certainly, the government had an investment in the idea that, well, we've given you access to THC, you don't need cannabis for medicinal purposes anymore. I can tell you that in my neurology practice, after um, Marinol, synthetic THC was downscheduled in 1999, I used it pretty extensively for the next four years in a variety of contexts, and it's uh, a very tricky drug. It's quite different to cannabis in that it's likely to produce dysphoria. So that's unhappiness as opposed to euphoria. Hmm. It's very distracting. Uh, It's very difficult to control. Um, And there's a very fine line between a dose that might help symptoms like reducing pain and that which produces unwanted side effects like distraction or anxiety. So in other words... Uh, THC has, alone has what we call a very narrow therapeutic index. 
Now, in contrast, when there are other ingredients aboard, particularly cannabidiol or certain of the terpoid, terpenoids, um, you get a great expansion of that therapeutic index so that much more THC can be used to better effect and with, without so many adverse events or side effects. Right on, good. So before we move on to CBD, let's let's talk briefly about THCA, which is the naturally occurring acid form of THC. Now, um, I think most of us know that to convert the naturally forming THCA into THC, uh, we need to add some heat to uh, decarboxylate it. Uh, but but a lot of people are looking at THCA um, for different therapeutic effects than THC. What what are the different therapeutic effects between the two right well they're quite distinct in their activities thca is considered non-psychoactive in other words it doesn't produce the high that we associate with thc uh, additionally it is it's thca is also an anti-inflammatory but through a different mechanism um, it affects a molecule called uh, uh tumor necrosis factor alpha that is important in certain autoimmune diseases uh, such as Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, Additionally, and this one needs a lot more work, there seems to be benefit in epilepsy. THC uh, can be helpful in epilepsy too, but uh, there seems to be a distinct mechanism Um, that really hasn't been adequately explored yet. So despite raw cannabis having been used medicinally for a long time throughout history, it just hasn't received uh, the research uh, that THC itself has. Uh, So it's it's a place where we need to learn a lot more. Uh, I'll mention one other thing that it can do. It seems to be very powerful uh, against certain tumors, particularly skin tumors, um, and so, again, this is an area that really deserves more research attention. So I know that we could probably do an entire show just uh, devoted to CBD as well as we could with THC. But let's go ahead and review um, um, cannabidiol uh, and, and, and talk about um, how it is uh, uh, so helpful to the human body. Yeah, well, there's this uh, dichotomy that's developed. Uh, a lot of people tend to think of cannabidiol as the good cannabinoid, where THC is the bad cannabinoid, and I really reject that. Uh, both have their place. Actually, uh, for most kinds of problems, a combination, uh, in other words, uh, using a type of cannabis that contains both is usually a distinct advantage. But... It's really fascinating because cannabidiol, uh, being a, a different molecule just by a little bit, has quite distinct features. Some of its activities are similar to THC in that both are anti-inflammatory, both are analgesic painkillers, but uh, as compared to THC, cannabidiol actually reduces anxiety uh, it's an antipsychotic. In other words, it's been used in schizophrenia to treat uh, that disorder primarily. Um, and um, a whole uh, list of other uh, properties beyond that. 
Yeah, while we're on that, let's let's go ahead and plug the great website at projectcbd.org. They've got a great uh, page on their website. Um, you can click on the word conditions on the website, and it lists a whole bunch of uh, different human ailments that, that you might have. And you can click on any con- uh, condition, and uh, they will pull up for you the scientific studies that are showing that uh, the different cannab- uh, the different cannabinoids, uh, the effect it can have, whether you have you know Parkinson's or pain or or asthma or anything. So uh, that's uh, projectcbd.org. So so um, so Ethan, you know a lot of us have heard of THC and CBD, but there's all these other cannabinoids. Is CBD so popular because it is so unique from the other cannabinoids, or is it because it's the first one to get extensive research? Uh, well, a combination of the two, but really, uh, if you ask me, uh, in my experience as a physician and researcher, uh, the single most versatile medicine uh, that I've ever encountered, it would be cannabidiol. There are at least 30 distinct activities that it has. So it is what's often derisively termed a dirty drug. However, a uh, dirty drug may also be one that works. And the remarkable thing about CBD is at the same time, if you asked me the safest drug, the one with the fewest side effects that I've ever encountered, it would also be cannabidiol uh, because there are very few of the things that it does, even at very high doses that are deleterious to, to the human body. Uh, so it's really a remarkable product. And perhaps its greatest uh, attribute is that it's able to modulate the endocannabinoid system. Now, I know that you've discussed the endocannabinoid system with your audience before, but just to, to mention again, it's a great homeostatic regulator. In other words, it brings various physiological systems in the body back into balance. And since cannabidiol is a general stimulant to endocannabinoid tone, it has the capability of improving function in any of a variety of areas uh, of physiology that might be deranged. So if there's pain, it helps with that. Uh, if there's too much activity in the gut, it will reduce it. If there's too little, it will increase it. Uh, so it has a sort of buffering effect to bring uh, physiology back into balance. That's great. I think that in uh, Chinese medicine, they call that a tonifier. It brings it brings you back to the neutral, to the center. Well, that's exactly uh, great, a great analogy there, sure. Right on. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest this week is Dr. Ethan Russo. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. 
True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest this week is world-renowned cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. So before the break, we hit the two biggies, THC and CBD. And so we're going to continue down the list of the other phytocannabinoids that are mentioned in your famous Taming THC paper. And we're going to start with one of the very rarely talked about ones, CBC. What can you tell us about CBC? Well, this is one that uh, needs a lot more work and a lot more attention. Part of the problem is uh, that cannabichromine is formed by a recessive gene uh, in contrast to THC and CBD where the pathways are from dominant genes. So it's a bit of a rarer bird in most uh, commercially available forms of cannabis um, additionally, it has a feature of being a little more prominent in uh, immature plants. So uh, if people wait until maturity, there's going to be less CBC. Um, but uh, one of my colleagues from GW Pharmaceuticals, David Potter, um, used young plants to to make what he called an enriched trichome product, which is another way of saying hash. Uh, he made this with young plants that did show uh, a predilection towards making uh, more cannabichromine, CBC, uh, and was able to get a good concentration that way. Unfortunately, it, it's never been used in a clinical trial yet, despite uh, having great promise uh, on its own. When you say uh, it, it appears most in young plants, uh, you're meaning young plants that are early in the bloom, right? So that they're forming trichomes as part of the blooming cycle? Or do you mean young as in they're still in veg? Uh, well, it'd be during the flowering phase. As with the other cannabinoids, uh, the greatest production is going to be in the capitate glandular trichomes that appear in the unfertilized female flowers. It would just be earlier in the flowering cycle, as you mentioned. Right on. I just wanted to make a difference between that and something like uh, canaflavin, right, which is actually in a young plant, but also early in the veg stage, if I understand it correctly. Sure, even in the sprouts. Right on. Fantastic. Um, so sounds like we definitely need more research into CBC. And since it's um, uh, a less common one, uh, aggressive breeders could start focusing on, on, on hybridizing for more CBC. Sure. There'd be an advantage because uh, as CBD is an endocannabinoid uh, uh, modulator, uh, so too is CBC. Uh, CBC is also anti-inflammatory. 
Uh, it's very active against uh, a variety of cancer cell lines. So it, it shows a lot of promise. Great, great. So, so I've heard of CBG uh, a little more often, and there are um, many labs that are, are able to start testing for it. Uh, why do we care about CBG? Well, uh, it's sort of the parent molecule uh, to the other phytocannabinoids, so that alone makes it important. Normally in the plant, it doesn't stop there. It uh, goes onward to either THC, CBD, or CBC, or the propyl uh, cannabinoids. Um, but um, again, uh, there have been plants bred in England uh, that quit. Uh, at CBG. They don't have the enzymatic equipment due to a mutation to go beyond it. And so in those plants, 100% of the cannabinoids would be as uh, cannabigerol. So cannabigerol, um, again, is one I'm excited about uh, for the future because, again, this hasn't been used in human clinical trials. Uh, But it it, uh, has very interesting properties. Uh, It seems to be a very strong anti-anxiety agent without being sedating. Um, Most of the drugs that are used that way in humans, like the benzodiazepines, Valium, etc., are not only sedating but addictive, and uh, this is quite different to what we see with CBG. There's no indication uh, that it would be addictive at all. Uh, Additionally, it has some muscle relaxant properties. Um, It... uh, Interestingly, is a strong uh, antibiotic or disinfectant. One of the things it does is it works against MRSA, uh, that's multiply resistant Staphylococcus aureus, uh, one of those hospital-acquired infections that uh, was rampant um, throughout the U.S. a few years ago uh, and poses a real risk for hospitalized patients that might be quite ill. So if, if CBG is kind of a, a, a parent cannabinoid, does that mean that when it degrades with time or light that it could uh, degrade into a different cannabinoid? Uh, no, not unless the plant is alive to provide the enzymes to do it. Uh, again, uh, usually in the plant machinery of cannabinoid production, it just doesn't stop there. It goes on through uh, to the next uh, item. And so usually CBG doesn't accumulate uh, in great amounts in a given plant. Mm. Right on. You know, earlier in um, uh, 2016, uh, THCV uh, was all through the media because people started talking about its uh, appetite suppression um, attributes and and you know supposedly uh, some of the forms of blue dream are heavy in it and and people love the idea that you could um, use cannabis but also not get the munchies um, you know how 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 effective is THCV to actually suppress the appetite does it do it a little bit or does it really not give you the munchies uh, well in in pure form which would not be accessible to people it, it's quite prominent. Uh, in its appetite suppression uh, effects without a speedy effect that one would get, say, from an amphetamine. Uh, So this is quite distinct. Um, The trouble is in cannabis uh, that's available in commerce in North America, usually the amount of tetrahydrocannabivirin or THCV is quite, quite low. Uh, But again, in England... Uh, there is a plant uh, where over 90% uh, 
uh, of the cannabinoids are expressed as THCV. Um, so that one has been used in humans, and it has the added benefit of being a pretty good anticonvulsant uh, drug for seizures. It's beyond the appetite suppressant part. It seems to be helpful in the metabolic syndrome. So this would be the problems that people get into if they're diabetic or pre-diabetic. So, you know, what you just said there was pretty heavy duty. The fact that the the commercially available cannabis strains that have THCV don't really have enough in it to to truly suppress the appetite. So, so taking that to the extreme end and talking about the example that you gave from the UK where it's 90% is you know if if you ingested that strain would it actually suppress the appetite or does it just make a really good target for extraction to extract THCV out of it to then apply that to the patient um no that particular plant uh when it's extracted even with a little bit of THC in it uh, does have the benefits that I mentioned. Uh, the point is, though, that uh, at least in the U.S., we're not there yet in terms of optimizing uh, THCV chemovars. Um, the available ones may produce less of the munchies, but they're not going to have all of the attributes uh, that we mentioned that have been seen with the extracts that have been used in clinical trials so far. Right on. So in your paper, uh, Taming THC, after THCV, you move to CBDV. Right. Well, this one also has just started uh, in human use. So this is the um, corresponding agent to CBD. So as THC is to THCV, CBDV is to as, is as to CBD. Um, so... Uh, this is, looks like CBD, but it's got a three-carbon side chain instead of five. And it's being investigated for seizures of partial onset, what used to be called focal seizures. Um, there seems to be a good signal there. Um, I really couldn't say a lot more about uh, how it affects people yet, uh, except that it, it appears to be non-intoxicating um, and appears to be quite safe. Uh, in the experiments that have been done so far. In the last year, uh, we've seen a lot of new products coming out that are um, uh, supplemented with CBN. And uh, most of them are, uh, people are saying, well, CBN totally helps you sleep. And so, and so they'll take their product, uh, you know, an edible or something, and they'll, they'll add CBN to it. Uh, do you think that CBN will have that kind of effect when supplemented into edibles? Uh, I'm not a proponent of spiking things uh, in that manner. Um, my personal bias is that uh, with uh, time and attention and proper selective breeding, uh, you can get the effects you want uh, from a given cannabis kinovar without uh, needing to add anything to it. Additionally, there's some misconceptions about cannabinol or CBN. Um, as a pure compound, it really is not very sedating. Uh, it is THC-like, but about a quarter of the potency. Uh, the confusion may arise because CBN is a uh, uh, non-enzymatic 
breakdown product of THC. In other words, in old cannabis, it will oxidize from THC into CBN. Um, at the same time, you get a lot loss of the monoterpenoids and you get remaining some of the higher molecular weight sesquiterpenoids that tend to be sedating. And so old cannabis tends to be soporific. That's a medical ease for uh, saying that it makes you sleep. Uh, but the CBN uh, itself is not strongly sedating. I was going to save this for the next section when we talk about terpenoids, but let's talk about it right now. Would you explain the difference between monoterpenoids and sesquiterpenoids? Sure. Um, terpenoids are built up of uh, five carbon blocks. The so-called monoterpenoids have 10 carbons. The sesquiterpenoids have 15. The diterpenoids have 20. And the triterpenoids have 30 carbons. So that, that's it. And uh, terpene means, um, there's confusion about these terms, but a terpenoid uh, is a broader term and would include um, agents that uh, have oxygen in them or occasionally other molecules. A terpene, strictly speaking, is, has just carbon and hydrogen. Right on. So one more thing on CBN before we move on to, to the group of terpenoids. You know, it's, it's common said amongst uh, cannabis folk that say, for example, oh, I've, I've got this flower left over from last summer's grow. Um, it's all CBN now. If you smoke it, you'll just get couch lock and fall asleep. And, and, and you know, while that's, you know, the kind of a rule of thumb, uh, you mentioning that CBN is not really all that sedative. Um, is, there, is there truth to the rule of thumb that I just uh, explained or is that, is that more myth? Well, the phenomenology, in other words, the description you gave is probably accurate. A lot of older cannabis is going to be sedating. Uh, it won't be stimulating necessarily. Um, uh, a lot of people find it uh, less uh, attractive. Um, but again, it would be from the sedative influences of the remaining terpenoids. Right on. So, so most of us know that terpenoids are the smell of the plant now, the aromatherapy, if you will. Would you explain what exactly a terpenoid is and why the plant bothers to produce them? Sure. Well, these are produced in the glandular trichomes along with the cannabinoids. And again, these are molecules that the plant makes uh, often in its defense. Some of these are insect repellents or insecticides. Others actually attract certain desirable bugs. Um, and they're often antioxidants and antibiotics. Uh, but again, um, we can leverage uh, what the plant has done uh, to help our own ailments. I, I know that when I'm shopping for cannabis, I usually uh, shop with my nose. I mean, obviously, I, I, I like bag appeal as much as anybody does. But really, you know, we're, we're opening jars, we're sticking our nose in there. And when our body has this reaction of, yeah, I want more of this, you know, we go ahead and choose that strain. Is there any um, support or truth to the fact that our body, when smelling specific terpenoids, knows what it needs, and so our body is self-selecting for the medicine that's best for us then? Uh, may well be. Um, 
you know, it's a hard thing to measure. I can say this. The situation that you describe is quite accurate. Uh, Michelle Sexton, uh, naturopath, uh, who's investigated this, looked at uh, patient preferences in Washington State, and the number one criterion for selection of a particular cannabis chemovar was its smell. Yeah, that does that doesn't surprise me at all. And you know what's interesting too is how how uh, strains that have got wildly different smells can I can be attracted to both. I can I can smell something that's you know really foul and skunky and smells like a baby diaper, like perhaps um, you know like a funky cheese, and I'm like, oh, I really need some of that. And then I'll smell you know uh, some some lemon diesel with a really bright citrus smell. And I'm like, oh, I want that too. Um, it's interesting how we can be a, our, you know our human can be attracted to a variety of terpenes that are very much unlike each other. Well, as they say, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> so, so um, you know, are terpenoids from cannabis and food and other sources the same? Do they have the same effect regardless of, of where they're from when they're in isolate? Yeah, in, in general, yes. Um, there are no terpenoids that we know of that appear only in cannabis. There's certain profiles that are characteristic, but these are part of everyday life. Um, if you're eating citrus, you, you're exposed. If you take a walk in a forest, you're exposed to pinene. Um, so they, if you have a plant-based diet, you're exposed to these. Um, but the key thing is how they synergize with THC and other cannabinoids. Uh, and this is the real difference. So if the question were, will exposure to terpenoids from food exert benefits? Yes, I believe that they do. Uh, it's just that um, in terms of the experience one has with cannabis, uh, they're really fundamental uh, to the differences that one experiences, uh, one chemovar to another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, one more question before we go to uh, to our next commercial. You know, uh, one of the things that really caught me off guard reading in your paper, you say that, you know, the terpenoids increase with intensity of light, but decrease with soil fertility. And that, that really kept caught me off guard because most of the growers I know are trying to make a very fertile living soil to help the terps uh, develop. Why is it true that uh, decreased soil fertility will increase terpenoids? Sure. Well, first off, um, the rich soil at the beginning is great, but um, depletion of the soil towards the end seems to help the terpenoids. And this shouldn't be a big surprise if we consider that our herbs uh, or lavender uh, grow best in a sandy soil uh, where uh, environmental conditions are a little rough. Uh, keep in mind that the terpenoids are plant defense compounds, and uh, so if the environment is a little more difficult, uh, your terpenoid production is going to increase. Um, for uh, people growing cannabis, uh, having a little uh, less water, uh, and a lot less nutrients towards the end of the flowering cycle are going to uh, produce the same kind of effect. Uh, it's specifically, you know, now that we've got all the growers' attention, um, when would you decrease the nutrients and water to get that effect? How many weeks uh, in? Oh, I, I can't tell you that exactly. I'm mm -hmm. sure there are people who know, but um, 
I'm, I'm not sure off the top. Right on. That's fair enough. So we're going to take another short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest this week is Dr. Ethan Russo. For anyone who is paying attention to cannabis medicine, it has become incredibly apparent that full extract cannabis oil, known to some as Rick Simpson oil, is the cornerstone of healing humans with medical marijuana. If you own a medical dispensary or retail store, you know that your customers are asking for it every single day. And if you have been working with patients and seeking out quality full extract oil in the Pacific Northwest, you know the provider Deep Green. Kat Jeter and her team at Deep Green have been making full extract cannabis oil and setting the standards for quality and exact dosing for years in Washington State. The Deep Green brand is known by patients and cannabis media as a premium quality provider for sick children, cancer patients, and others in need. At a time when there are no national standards for cannabis oil, ensuring a product is whole plant, quality assured, and lab tested is often a matter of knowing your source is reputable. Trust in a quality brand is essential when choosing a cannabis medicine that is going to be used concentrated and in volume by any patient, and especially those with weakened immune systems. Deep Green is looking for national brand partners to expand the availability of their legacy top-shelf cannabis oil to emerging medical and licensed states. Partners benefit from the Deep Green brand recognition and credibility, as well as ongoing customer and marketing support. Not only that, but Deep Green knows how to employ the 280E tax rule so you can deduct it all from your taxes. Working with Deep Green can provide the trust and authenticity too often pushed aside in favor of lifestyle products. Your customers can assure themselves that regardless of the state in which it is made, brand licensees adhere to the same strict standards that patients everywhere have come to expect from Deep Green. Deep Green licensing includes startup and capital planning, as well as operational and manufacturing instruction, as you'd expect. For more information on how your company, co-op, or medical dispensary can benefit from partnering with Deep Green to provide full extract cannabis oil to patients, go to shapingfire.com forward slash deep green to connect with Kat Jeter and her team. That's shapingfire.com forward slash deep green. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guest this week is world-renowned cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. So before the break, we kind of set up the terpenoids and talked about what they are as a group and, and kind of what their attributes are. So for this section, we're going to go through the very specific terpenoids that you talk about in your uh, groundbreaking paper, uh, Taming THC. So let's start with D-limonene. Yes, my favorite. I guess it's good to have a favorite, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, limonene is a really fascinating compound, and it's pretty ubiquitous. And unfortunately, the place you're most likely to run into it is walking down the detergent aisle at the supermarket. Um, to our senses, um, the scent of lemon or citrus uh, denotes cleanliness or healthiness. Uh, so there's a reason it's it's there that way. It not only makes an efficient cleaning agent, uh, but it has this strong psychological effect, um, one of brightness, cleanliness, and improved mood. And that's exactly what limonene uh, will produce when it's there in a significant amount along uh, with the cannabinoids. 
I tell people who are unfamiliar with terpenes that if they if they want to have the experience of limonene to just, you know, s- simply cut a piece of citrus fruit like a lemon and you smell it and suddenly you feel uh, motivated and happy and um and you know full of sunshine and joy and that is that that is the terpenes having a direct effect on you. Um when you when you cut uh, a lemon is that limonene and then when you cut an orange that citrine uh, no, they're both primarily limonene. Mm. Uh, the difference between the various citrus fruits, uh, o- almost all of them have very high percentage of limonene in the rind. Uh, you know, if you take your thumbnail across the rind of a citrus, you're releasing uh, trichomes and uh, limonene. Uh, the differences in the smells and tastes come from uh, much uh, lower concentration uh, factors, other uh, other terpenoids that are distinct from one another in the various kinds of citrus. That certainly uh, kind of explains why so many cocktails are served with a uh, with a twist, right? Because right. As, as you're bringing the cocktail up to your nose, uh, you're getting this hit of limonene that's making you feel joyous as you're enjoying the cocktail, and, and no wonder we like it. Sure. So the the next one that you cover in the paper paper is uh, uh, beta myrcene, right? Um, myrcene uh, is the most prevalent uh, terpenoid in most available chemovars of cannabis. Uh, to me, that's unfortunate. Certainly, there are people that prefer it, uh, but it has a strongly sedating, narcotic-like effect, um, and so. If there's a kind of cannabis that uh, makes people unable to move, what's commonly termed couch lock, uh, it's likely that uh, it's due to a high myrcene content. Um, So that's not always an advantage. If someone needs to sleep or needs to relax, uh, certainly it can be. Um, On the plus side, myrcene does have analgesic pain-killing properties on a variety of other properties that can be beneficial. But in general, there's a lot of it out there and maybe more than is needed for optimal effect. Uh, Certainly for people who have to work or study, uh, it's usually not an advantage to have a high concentration of myrcene. So it would be remiss if we didn't touch on mangoes here for a moment because a lot of people say that, you know, if you if you want to enjoy your cannabis especially well, go ahead and eat a mango before it because the myrcene uh, improves the experience of the cannabis. How much of that is myth and how much of that is real? Mostly myth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a paper that was done on the uh, – the terpenoid content of mangoes, and it varies from being a fair amount to some where there's almost none. Uh, Additionally, a lot of people will say that myrcene helps uh, to get THC across the blood-brain barrier. Uh, Well, normally THC has no problem getting across the blood-brain barrier. Uh, Both of these compounds are what we call lipophilic, fat-loving, and they all go right into the brain without any difficulty. Um, so uh, I think mangoes are really healthy and people should eat them because they want to or enjoy it. But um, I think the likelihood that that's going to have a material effect uh, on their um, experience is, is pretty low. 
<laughs> right on. Well said. Well, let's talk about one of my favorites, uh, Alpha Pining. You know, uh, when I one of the first times that I, I heard you speak, it really impressed me that, you know, I love walking in the forest. I love that Nordic term to take a, maybe it's a Japanese term. Anyway, uh, to take a forest bath. To yes, go out. exactly. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And, uh, and, and you were explaining how, you know, when you go into the forest and you're around these pine trees and it's get they're it's get, they're giving off pine and you, you know you, you take a big breath and you fill your lung sacs and you're like hmm the forest and actually what you're getting is a big hit of pining right yes it is yeah so uh shinrin yoku or uh, forest bathing is uh just the act of walking in a, a forest uh in japan um and you know a lot of people, if they've had a difficult work day, they want to clear their head. That's exactly what they'll do, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, is take a, a walk in a pine forest. Or in our instance, it's going to be other conifers, but they're all rich in pining, so the effect on one's uh, mood is going to be the same. Um, but uh, it goes further than that. Uh Unfortunately, pining is less common in modern chemovars of cannabis. It's sort of been shoved aside by mercine, if you will. Um, but in chemovars that have it, uh, the end result is an experience that's much clearer without the confusion and the short-term memory that people often equate uh, with THC. Um, clearly, THC does produce impairment of short-term memory, uh, but pining is what's called a cholinesterase inhibitor. Uh, it inhibits the breakdown of acetylcholine, which is the main memory molecule in the brain. Um, so it reverses this effect that THC has, and uh, particularly for a patient uh, who needs cannabis, having pining uh, in the chemovar that they're using is much more likely, uh, if they use it, it'd be much more likely that they'll be able to work or study without uh, the impairment that can come in uh, if there's too much THC or if there's too much sedation from mercine, for example. I see. So something with a lot of pining would be really good for, for daytime because you can be more productive and a little more focused and, and have more likelihood to stay on task. Right. And again, um, I, I'd emphasize that a lot of this is subject to uh, people's preferences. Um, there's some people that love the mercine couch lock, lock effect, and others really dislike it. Um, so taste does taste comes into this in a big way. Yeah, I'm I'm actually one of those people that loves mercine. Uh, you know, I can I can enjoy the the most couch lockiest strains and still have a good time of it because I tend to run really hot and fast anyway. I generally stay away from sativas just because they, they tend to over amp me. Um, and, and that's, you know, one of the important parts of individualized me medicine, right? Where, where not one, one size does not fit all. And, and when, and when people are originally getting into cannabis, they should take some time to sample a wide variety of strains so that they can taste a lot of these different terpenoids and find out the one that their human enjoys the most. Uh, sure. And again, I'd extend that to therapeutic applications, the one that's going to give them the best uh, benefits on their symptoms and produce the fewest side effects. 
Am I correct that linalool, the next terpenoid we're going to talk about, is pretty heavy in lavender and is one of the aspects that makes us feel so calm when we smell it or use a lavender eye pillow? Yeah, that's exactly right. A pretty remarkable compound. In addition to having those anti-anxiety effects, uh, can aid sleep. Uh, It's a very strong local anesthetic. Uh, One of the things I always like to talk about is uh, that people should keep a bottle of lavender essential oil uh, in the fridge in the kitchen because if you get a kitchen burn and put the lavender oil on neat and cover it with uh, an ice cube, uh, the pain will generally go away in a few minutes and uh, almost never blister. Is it too... um is it too intense straight? Would you need to thin it out with something? You know how some, some essential oils will burn the skin? Right. No, that's a good point. But lavender uh, oil is safe to use neat, undiluted on the skin. Right on. So um, our next one, beta uh, caryophylline, I had a really cool experience with a couple weeks ago. Uh, I was down in uh, Sonoma County for Emerald Cup, and uh, I was staying at a house with uh, with a whole bunch of uh, cannabis business owners. We kind of just split this 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 wine country villa. It was pretty great, and I met uh, Ben Cassidy from True Terpenes, and and he he was going around the house and and giving people some beta caryophylline in their hands, and then and then he was encouraging us to cup our hands to our face, and it had a faint smell of of black pepper. But the thing that was remarkable was how incredibly calming it was. And I had never really considered dosing myself with terpenes in such a simple and elegant way as to just put a little bit in in my palm and then cup it to my nose. Sure. Well, you know, it's a direct pathway to the brain. It's interesting. Um, This is something we need to explore more um, because generally caryophylline is considered, quote, non-psychoactive, unquote. But Um, Certainly, it has uh, powerful anti-inflammatory effects, and in a situation where someone had inflammation for any reason, uh, particularly in the brain, it's uh, very likely going to be therapeutic, and that could manifest itself in uh, change of mood, certainly. Um, But it's really remarkable because uh, caryophylline, which is a sesquiterpenoid, in other words, 15-carbon molecule, is not just a terpenoid, it's a cannabinoid too. Uh, It is a strong agonist, uh, stimulator, at the CB2 receptor. That is the cannabinoid receptor that's non-psychoactive and uh, is important out in the body and potentially in the brain. for pain and inflammation. Uh, so this is a fascinating agent. And it's, it's common in our diets. You mentioned black pepper. That's the most accessible source. But um, there are other uh, good examples like copaiba balsam, which has been used in South America uh, to treat uh, inflammation, sprains, and uh, skin conditions uh, for generations by indigenous people long before we knew anything about the chemicals in it, which is primarily caryophylline. You know, um, I kind of think that we need an expanded vocabulary because that idea of being psychoactive or not, you know, a lot of people are talking about THC being psychoactive and CBD being non-psychoactive and and then, you know, beta caryophylline not being psychoactive. But I know that when I smelled it in my palms, it clearly had a calming effect, which tells me that it is active, 
psychologically, right? And so for me, it was psychoactive, but it did not have that that getting high or stony effect that THC does. It feels to me like like you know over time we need to develop a, a, a and widen our vocabulary for for these experiences. I'd endorse that uh, approach. Um, do you know anybody who's you know is is there a paper written about that or or anything that you'd recommend that I and others read about about that delineation or has that work not really taken place yet? Uh, probably more the latter. Um, there are some extensive reviews on caryophylline, um, really looking at the effects that it has uh, on the brain or on mood. I've uh, just begun. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the real emphasis isn't on caryophylline, but uh, trying to make synthetic drugs that would be like it that might be more marketable from an intellectual property standpoint. I uh, think that such effort is misguided when we have a readily available natural agent uh, that's not only effective but quite safe. There's this great term uh, that that we got from Dr. Dominic Korova of CASP when he was on the show uh, a couple months ago. Uh, he talks about whole plant politics. People like myself in this show, and and from what I understand, you as well. We believe in the whole plant. So let's let's use the plant. Let's emphasize the entourage effect, and let's not focus as much our research on finding uh, synthetic replacements. Let's work on the plant, even though uh, it may be not. Not possible to patent it and uh, as intellectual property. Well, sure. No, I, I do believe in that approach. Um, until about the last seventy years, uh, medicine was synonymous with plants, and it's still that way for many people in the third world and indigenous peoples around the world. So the ne- the next um, the next terpenoid I actually have never heard pronounced. So I'm I'm going to butcher butcher it, and then you can uh, uh, fix it for me. Is it neurolidol? Neurolidol, yes. Neurolidol. Uh, please, I, I have never learned anything about that. Um, What's well, probably not uh, that common in most North American uh, cannabis chemovars. It is a minor component of citrus. Um, it has some interesting antifungal effects. Uh, it penetrates the skin really well and can tend to drag other things in along with it. Um, but uh, it's probably not one that a lot of people are going to encounter um, in, in North America, at, at least in cannabis. Is is the reason for that because it's not popular in you know the commercial cannabis world, or is it because those cultivars are from you know uh, you know really exotic foreign countries that we just don't have the genetics here? I mean, what's the reason we don't come across it? I'm not sure. If we knew more about the ecological role that it had, I, I could probably give a better answer. Uh, so you've stumped me on that one. <laughs> All right. Um, so that let's move on to uh, caryophylline oxide. Right. Well, uh, you know, as you can tell from the name, this just has an extra oxygen uh, on it as compared to caryophylline. Um, Again, uh, very powerful antifungal. This could be the solution um, to nail fungus. Um, Additionally, uh, its real distinction is it seems to be the chemical in cannabis uh, that sniffer dogs key in on uh, to identify uh, cannabis. Uh, at least that's what they thought when it was examined in uh, Austria about 35 years ago. 
Uh, nobody's really done any work on it since. Uh, so there's a research project for somebody who'd like to look into that. Yeah, we're actually this is actually kind of a laundry list of up and coming research scientists about all the all the cool areas of cannabis that are still just like waiting for people to dive into. Um well, yeah, the article is uh almost 6 years old now and I've made a bunch of suggestions and a lot of them haven't had follow-up, so here's your chance. <laughs> so the so the last one in this section is Phytol. Right. Well, phytol is pretty universal. Um, any dried uh, herb is going to have some in it because uh, it's basically a breakdown product of chlorophyll. Now, what's interesting about it is it's probably responsible for the calming effect of green tea, even though green tea has caffeine in it. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that that's uh, the main thing there. Um, so, if uh, cannabis is purely flower, not a lot of leaf, there won't be much of it. And it is a, a diterpenoid, the only 20 uh, carbon uh, molecule that's uh, common in herbal cannabis. So, before we wrap up this section, I'd like to circle back around to uh, your suggestion that you're not a big fan of spiking uh, cannabis and cannabis products with uh, terpenoids or probably any phytocannabinoid. You know, uh, uh, folks are now taking products, you know, from edibles to tinctures, and 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 they're starting with whole plant, which is great, but then they want to they want to turn up some aspect of it. Say they want to make it a little more stimulating, and so they'll drop some limonene in there. Or or they want to say it's more for for pain, uh, and so they'll drop some myrcene in there. Um, so long as you start with a whole plant base, so you do have all the minor cannabinoids in there. Um, what is the reason why you're not so much of a fan of of spiking just a little bit of one or the other for its therapeutic effect? Well, it's it's multiple reasons. First. Um, we don't necessarily know the source of the terpenoids, whether they've been organically produced. Is it the right stereoisomer? Um, if somebody goes online uh, to a chemical supply house and looks up limonene, it isn't going to be one. There are going to be several. Um, so it's not a simple thing uh, for a person to pick the right one. Uh, again, most of these aren't 100% pure. Um, and they're not designed for internal use. Um, now, let's compare that to organically grown cannabis. Uh, we know that uh, we know what its side effects are, um, uh, but it's very different using a, a synthesized chemical and adding that to material. But beyond that, I'd reemphasize what I said previously. This plant is capable of doing almost anything you wish, uh, given the time and attention to selective breeding for the desired components. Um, to me, there's no substitute uh, for someone taking the time and effort uh, to get the plant that they want. Um, sure, uh, a lot of the things you mentioned in terms of spiking can be illuminating for people to understand uh, the different effects, but um, as a, a practice, uh, it's not something I'd really encourage. Finally, there's a, another important reason, and that is a lot of these are in commercial development of one kind or another. I know that a lot of companies are pursuing this. Um, you cannot spike a natural plant and develop a, a drug out of it. 
um, through the Food and Drug Administration approval process. Um, that's considered a combination product. Um, and so you have to do the uh, safety, efficacy, and toxicity on um, the original material, the added material, and the two together. So it triples the amount of investigation that's necessary. And uh, from a financial standpoint, it makes it an impossibility uh, because developing a drug for FDA approval can be upwards of a billion dollars at this point from start to finish. One of the things that you mentioned about spiking is that you weren't sure if it was from an organic source. And the way I'm taking that is that that you're suggesting there are synthetic terpenoids. I actually thought that all of the terps that we came across were either cannabis or food-based. Are you saying that, that, that there are such things as synthetically produced terpenoids? The vast majority are synthetically produced. Wow. A lot of these are byproducts of uh, petroleum products. Um, so, uh, you know, the chemical company will make one thing out of another thing. Uh, and again, let's say it's 95% pure and you've got the right um, molecule. What about the other 5%? You don't know what that is. Uh, it will say right on the bottle uh, that it's not designed um, uh, to be used as uh, medicine or taken internally or anything else. Um, there's a real potential danger there, and I don't want to exaggerate. Uh, it, there is a potential danger there. Right on. So we're going to take our last commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the psychopharmacological impacts of these different cannabinoids. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest this week is Dr. Ethan Russo. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you will like audiobooks too. Pretty much, audiobooks are like podcasts, except with less stuttering, better production quality, and more targeted topics. Yeah, I know. I make audiobooks sound better than a podcast, and you know, maybe they are. But I get you. I like podcasts too. I like to learn from people talking to me while I'm doing something else, like you know, driving or cleaning my house or making dinner or even being at work, whatever. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer I want to tell you about. Right now, they are offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you will get a free audiobook straight up. You can listen to it on your mobile device, on your computer, or you can download it and listen to it, you know, pretty much anywhere. It's really simple. You know, of course, they really want you to subscribe to their service forever and enjoy more and more audiobooks. But as cannabis users, you also know how this goes. The first one is free. They're going to hate I've said that, <laughs> but it's pretty great. You know, I listened recently to Smoke Signals by Martin Lee from ProjectCBD.org. Martin's book is a classic of cannabis advocacy. He explains the history of cannabis in America, uh, THC and CBD cannabis science, and why cannabis policy in America has gotten so jacked. You know, if you consider yourself a cannabis person, this book really is a must. Talking cannabis, we all sound radical just because we're talking about weed, but if you learn the history and science of cannabis, suddenly you become smart and trustworthy to people. The book was really incredible, and there's no doubt that Martin Lee is the real deal. You can get the book for free just for doing the trial. You know, if you don't want to listen to a cannabis book, that's cool too. There's everything else. There's sci-fi and history, biography. 
Hell, you can even listen to a book about card counting in Blackjack. Whatever, it's all pretty rad. So here's the deal. Your first book is free. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to quit. But they do do a pretty good job making me want to stay every month. Just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guest this week is world-renowned cannabis researcher and neurologist, Dr. Ethan Russo. So in the last section of your paper, Taming THC, you talk about some of the psychopharmacological impacts that these phytocannabinoids have. And so we'll touch on the, the same three that you talk about in your paper. So let's start with their impact on depression and anxiety. Right. Well, you know, there is benefit to THC and certainly to CBD in some of these mood disorders, but they can really strongly be enhanced uh, by the addition of the right terpenoid and particularly the pinene and limonene uh, respectively for clarity uh, from the pinene and uh, an antidepressant effect uh, from the limonene. Um, there's a real synergy or boosting of effect there where you get uh, much, much more dramatic effect in the combination than you would be with any single uh, molecule alone. So, so when, when they're working together like this for the entourage effect, um, you're finding that uh, they kind of uh, groups these together, you know, depression, anxiety, these are, these are all your endocannabinoid system getting out of balance, and so they're working together to rebalance. Is, is that what you're suggesting? Uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly part of it. Um, another, actually, people have this misconception. I, I'm afraid it's been uh, spread around all, also by the medical community that uh, depression is a, a serotonin deficiency. Uh, so you need a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor to treat it. Well, they can help. Um, but actually, that isn't uh, good science. We should think of um, depression as being a disorder of plasticity of the brain. Uh, in other words, you've got a loss of the ability to roll with the proverbial punches. Um, things aren't working efficiently. Um, you've lost uh, uh, lost uh, the ability to react uh, to the environment in an optimal fashion. Um, in fact, one of the effects of the cannabinoids seems to be increased to increase plasticity of the brain. And uh, again, with uh, mood enhancement from limonene, that's a powerful combination. So when you say plasticity, um, is, is that a part of the, the removal of plaque that we talk about when using phytocannabinoids to, to help the brain remove plaque, thus fighting things like Alzheimer's and causing uh, neurogenesis and acting as a neuroprotectant? Yeah, it's the neurogenesis, uh, the regeneration of, of nerve cells. The, uh, th there are benefits of both THC and CBD potentially in uh, dementia like uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, yeah, the, there is the possibility that uh, we could help prevent plaque formation that is uh, one of the hallmarks of that disorder. You know, very often when I'm talking with patients, they're, they're asking me about insomnia. It's like, oh my gosh, I need help um, getting to sleep. And, you know, it, it always... Um, 
you know, as part as a, as part of the suggestion, I always try to find out if it's if it's you know anxiety and, and they can't slow their brain down, or whether or not sometimes with patients it's pain and every time they roll over it's pain, and then you have to deal with the pain first, and then you can go back and and work with the insomnia. But let's say for example that it's not pain related and it's you know racing brain related, and we're trying to help people you know settle down and slip into good slumber, and you know. Most of the professionals that I talk to, we all kind of agree that the that the heavy purple indica flowers, you know, that are packed with myrcene are a good way to go. But one thing I've never heard anybody explain is that why that ha- why it works. Well, uh, it's uh, multifactorial, as we like to say <laughs> in medicine. Part of it is uh, just the sleepiness, the hypnotic effect of some cannabis components, including THC and myrcene, but. Uh, Both of those are also painkillers. I wrote about this about 10 years ago, a a review of effects of cannabis on sleep. Um, In the clinical trials that have been done on cannabis-based medicine, the symptom that is almost always alleviated is uh, insomnia. And again, it's a combination of factors. Number one being that there may be a hypnotic effect from uh, the particular uh, preparation. But beyond that, and more dramatic, is the reduction of symptoms, allowing sleep. In other words, if the person has pain, reducing the pain allows them to sleep. If they have restless legs and those are calmed, that allows them to sleep. Uh, Same thing with spasticity, uh, increased muscle tone. Definitely the same thing with lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, With cannabis, uh, it's been shown that there are fewer uh, episodes of needing to get up at night to urinate. Um, So clearly that can lead to better sleep. Um, So it is the reduction in symptomatology that's the most um, salient reason that cannabis is a sleep aid. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so the last one that you review in your paper is addiction. And it's become pretty common for people to use cannabis to uh, to move off narcotics, most common recently, um, but also alcoholism. How, how does that work? Well, it's uh, complicated, but a lot of this works um, through reward pathways in the brain that are uh, mediated by a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Um, but um, basically, there are different mechanisms operative. Uh, with THC, it's a little bit more mysterious, but it would pertain to modulation of the reward pathways. Uh, with cannabidiol, um, what has been noted is that a lot of addiction is related to craving that comes about as a withdrawal effect. Um, and that seems to be mediated by an area in the brain called the insula. Uh, cannabidiol has the uh, ability to um, chemically turn down the activity in the insula and eliminate craving uh, potentially. So between the two, uh, there can be a very generous effect on addiction issues, particularly withdrawal that makes a lot of sense. And and actually, that's a way more elegant explanation than I've been giving people. The idea that, that CBD will decrease the craving instead of replacing whatever the person is addicted to makes a lot of sense. 
So the, the last thing that you cover uh, in the paper is that, that sometimes you have more THC than your body is prepared for and you start to feel uncomfortable. And, and I think that pretty much anybody who has uh, experimented with cannabis or has been a patient and, and you know, tried to self-titrate their usage to learn how much to use. I think that most of us have had at some point an over-medicated experience, which is, you know, has got the range somewhere between feeling a little uncomfortable and you just want to go be alone all the way to, um, you know, uh, uh, your, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure drops, and you're wondering if you, you should call the paramedics, which which is never a fun experience. And so what, I, what I'm doing is I want to set up uh, for you, and I wish we had the wonderful slide you use in your presentations, but I, I would like you to tell the story that you tell about uh, the perfect had-too-much-THC meal. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this leads us off on a historical tangent, but when I was writing the paper, I was interested in historical antidotes to cannabis, um, they go back, uh, well, almost, uh, well, over 2,000 years. Uh, there have been allusions to citrus um, uh, as being um, an antidote uh, to cannabis. And it's been repeated in different cultures around the world uh, that didn't necessarily have knowledge of one another. Uh, so limonene is certainly one, but we also have evidence for pinene from pine nuts. And so um, I developed what I call uh, THC overdose meal, which would be um, uh, pesto uh, with the pine nuts and uh, some basil uh, along with um, uh, a drink called limonada. Uh, or uh, agua limon, which is uh, like lemonade, but uh, in this instance, spiked with a whole bunch of extra uh, lemon rind uh, for that uh, necessary limonene. Uh, but uh, certainly if someone's had an overdose of cannabis, they're not in a position uh, to make this meal. Um, it'd be best to have on hand or someone else supplying it. <laughs> have somebody there to to make you a meal <laughs> to help you come down. Um, great. So let, let's. Uh, I've got a couple questions that are kind of just generally related to phytocannabinoids that I'd, I'd like to wrap up with. So, so one of them is that you know uh, since the trichomes are the home of the of the oils and the terpenoids, um, it, it makes me think that potentially a product that is just the trichomes, say for example, a, a hash or something, um, would be able to be considered whole plant medicine because it's all there in the trichomes. But at the same time, I, I doubt that interpretation because there aren't things like chlorophyll in there. So, so would you see a you know a dry hash or a, and I don't mean extracted, I don't mean like butane. I'm talking about a dry sift hash or an ice water hash. Would you consider those to be whole plant medicine? I do. Mm. Right. You know, the chlorophyll is uh, an agent on its own is, is mainly uh, good as a laxative. Um, really, in terms of cannabis flowers, the real medicinal part is the glandular trichome. And its purest manifestation uh, would be hashish, uh, again, what uh, Potter called an enriched 
uh, trichome preparation. Um, so that is going to have uh, the full complement of the cannabinoids and terpenoids. Uh, it might not have some other elements uh, that one would get uh, from other parts of the plants like uh, canned flavin. But uh, again, those can be had on their own. Right on. Thank you. So, you know, there was some discussion and even some experiments in the mid-2000s that questioned the entourage effect. And in the end, it was generally agreed that the levels of CBD and other cannabinoids and the doses that they were using were too low to actually moderate the THC, um, kind of debunking those studies. What do you see as the required milligram dosage of CBD to successfully play a role in the patient's experience? Well, it should be based on proportions. Um, uh, in the past, uh, some dispensaries have gotten excited about very low levels of CBD, uh, despite its being so versatile and so uh, health-promoting. Um, CBD is not what you call really potent. There's got to be a good amount there. Generally speaking, you want uh, for a preparation where there's going to be CBD, you want at least as much as the THC. And in some instances, it's better to have a lot more CBD than THC. Right on. That makes the sense. So, so at least a one-to-one and up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so is there, a, is there a threshold for that where um, the amount of CBD that you're intaking is too low to really have any effect at all on you? Uh, certainly, but it would depend also on the absolute amount of THC. Generally speaking, uh, because it's so overwhelming in its effects, one would base the overall dose on that. Um, so put it in this, these terms. Um, two milligrams of THC is a threshold dose or a good place to start for someone who's not accustomed to cannabis. Five milligrams is going to affect most people. 10 milligrams is a pretty large dose and certainly may be too much uh, for someone who's cannabis naive. Um, But uh, it would be that amount of THC with whatever amount of CBD is available, and it could be as much as 30 times as as much as THC um, with some of the modern chemovars. Um, But say to treat a condition like rheumatoid arthritis, um, or schizophrenia or uh, epilepsy, you need a much, much higher dose of cannabidiol. So, so what would that number be? Where, where would you, you know, much, much? Are you talking about 10 milligrams of CBD a day or are you talking about 50? No, it could be a few hundred milligrams oh, of wow. CBD. Um, and that, you know, that uh, becomes difficult to obtain and can be quite expensive. Um, but a lot of these problems are byproducts of prohibition and hopefully would be circumvented at some point in the future. So, so let's say 100 milligrams of CBD in a day is what's going to be called for. Uh, is that something that you'd be able to take all at once or would that just totally overwhelm your, your, your intake and you actually would need to break that down into three doses over the day? Well, How much uh, can your body take? Well, it can take, uh, in the recent clinical trials of Epidiolex, which is almost pure CBD, for seizure disorders, they've used as much as 2,500 milligrams of CBD a day, but that's without any THC. Um, To answer your question, generally speaking, most types of cannabis and CBD should be dosed 
two or three times a day uh, if we're talking about orally. Um, and so it's not just a matter of the total overall daily dose, but how it is apportioned out. Um, but um, 2,500 milligrams is a lot. Um, at that high dose, there can be some drug-drug interactions, but at lower doses, those are quite rare with CBD. Um, as a practical measure, though, um, people are not using pure CBD, and almost invariably, there's going to be some amount of THC that becomes the rate-limiting factor mm -hmm. in what people can manage uh, to take without having issues. So that brings us to the hot question, right? Because we're talking about how the market is working and, and being able to afford CBD because CBD from medical cannabis remains expensive because of prohibition. So I want to set up this question where I'm asking your thoughts on CBD derived from hemp. Because, you know, as uh, whole plant people, um, you know, we understand that without the constituents of the medical cannabis plants, the minor cannabinoids to create the entourage effect, using CBD uh, in isolate really does not get to claim the benefits um, of all this CBD research. You know, when you read these papers, they're, they're invariably CBD as the primary component in the presence of THC and minor cannabinoids. And yet the CBD from hemp market is claiming that uh, these stud, you know, they're claiming the advantages of these studies for their CBD in isolate plant from hemp. So, so what are your thoughts about CBD derived from hemp? Well, I have to be very critical. Um, that's not a good source. And we're not just talking about hemp. We're talking about hemp refuse. Uh, in other words, the hemp has been processed for another uh, reason and they've done a chemical extraction to concentrate the CBD but at the same time they're concentrating pesticides or any other contaminants um, they're really not using a dedicated uh, flower uh, to produce the medicine and that's the richest source and the purest source um, additionally uh, because of prohibition there is not the quality control in the industry that would tell you whether this is a good product or not. Um, so I have to be quite critical. Okay, so I'm going to take that another another step and press a little bit more. So, so I agree how that position uh, suggests. Okay, we should not be buying CBD isolate from China because you know uh, hemp is a wonderful toxin and heavy metals aggregator, and you don't know what's going to be um, what, what you're going to be buying. But you know, there's some companies in Colorado now that are growing, uh, you know, uh, environment controlled hemp. Uh, for extraction for medical products and and you know they're, they're claiming that the, the the ground is clean and such so so if we set aside the contamination factor for a moment um, do you think that it is reasonable at all to and I know this kind of goes back to the spiking idea but let's say that you're you're taking some amount of of medical cannabis so you're getting kind of like this bed of, of THC, phytocannabinoids, including all the minor ones, but you also, because let's say you're a rheumatoid arthritis patient, you need a whole lot of CBD as part of that mix. Um, do you think there's any efficacy to to have that base from a, me a whole, whole plant medicine, but then spike it with, say, 100 milligrams of CBD from hemp? Uh, again, that's really suboptimal. 
uh, to me. You know, uh, proper medicine would uh, be stand on its own merits, uh, not need spiking from anything else. And and you know, the capability is there. Uh, the proper chemovars are there. They're not available everywhere uh, at this time. But again, um, I would hope for a better future on which there are good quality controlled products available uh, that are backed by uh, solid analyses uh, so that consumer and physician alike can know uh, what people are getting. Yeah, you know, from a from a business point of view, it it sounds like CBD from hemp is a short term product from a, a transitionary market from prohibition. I mean, the the reason why it makes sense for so many businesses to try to sell it is because you know whole plant medicine is still so expensive because it's being controlled. Um. So so Ethan, is it true that you're working on a follow up to this paper? Yes, absolutely. As we speak. So um, so when 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 can we look forward to that? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It's uh, going to be in um, a hybrid situation, advances in pharmacology. So it comes out initially as a book, um, but it'll also be available as an article. Um, and it'll be pretty extensive, um, covers some of the same ground as taming THC with the cannabinoids, the terpenoids, the the cannabis flavonoids, uh, but the, we'll, we'll have a generous number of terpenoids that were not uh, treated uh, in the prior paper. Um, and the uh, benefit of an additional five or six years of research on some of the agents that we did uh, discuss previously. Uh, so I'm excited about it. I'm doing that uh, in collaboration with Jehan Marku. And uh, I think it'll be a nice entry. I'm hoping it'll be available later uh, in 2017. Well, hopefully you'll accept uh, my invitation when your paper comes out to discuss it here on Shaping Fire again. I'd be delighted. Well, Ethan, this has certainly been a lot of valuable information to absorb. I know the cannabis specialists and nerds out there like me um, have loved this opportunity to hear you expand on your groundbreaking paper. Thank you so much for dedicating uh, some of your valuable time to be on the show. My pleasure. You can read Dr. Russo's paper, Taming THC, online for free, and you can find the link on the podcast page for this episode. You can reach Dr. Russo at his email address, ethanrusso at comcast.net. But I also want to say you've got to remember that Dr. Russo is constantly traveling the world and speaking at conventions and, and working. And so, you know, sometimes he's not going to be able to get back with you right away. So um, he's, he's always happy to hear from folks, but please be patient in the time frame it takes him to, to turn around the emails. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. Mm-hmm.